invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 43. We're nearing the end of Genesis in our Bible in a Year series. And and nearly one-fifth of Genesis tells the story of Joseph and his brothers. And we're going to read just a little bit of that story. This is um, near the end in chapter 43. I'm just going to read a few verses of this interaction that Joseph has with his brother, starting in verse 26, and and then we'll talk about why I chose this scripture. Uh, Verse 26, when Joseph came home, uh, they, his brothers, presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house. And they bowed down before him to the ground, and he asked them how they were. And then he added, How is your aged father that you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. And as he looked about and saw his brother, Benjamin, His own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one that you told me about? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. Um, One of of the things that we're doing with this Bible in a Year storyline is we're, we're talking about um, why these different stories are so important to the, to the Bible storyline. Um, why are they there in the first place? And why is the story of Joseph and his brothers in the Bible? Um, you know, one, one answer, and it's an incomplete answer, is, well, it tells about how the Hebrew people finally wound up in Egypt because we know that in Exodus... The next book of the Bible tells about God's rescue of the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. And we have to explain somehow how they get from the land of Canaan, the promised land, uh, down to Egypt. And that could be one reason why this story is is in our Bible. God wanted to help us connect the dots of the storyline, but that's just an incomplete answer. There's there's a much more important, I think, a, a more important reason why this story is in our Bible um, than just an explanation of how the Hebrew people get on down to Egypt. Um, think about what, what we see happening um, the last uh, 40 or so, or 30 or so chapters, not 40 or so chapters in, in Genesis. Um, we see God making a promise to one man, Abraham, that he will be the father of many people, many descendants, and through them, all peoples will be blessed. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a couple of sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons and a daughter. And, and they have children. They have children. So by the end of Genesis, what we see happening is this isn't just a, an individual here or there that God is calling. This is a people. This is a group and, of course, that gets full-blown in, in Exodus over the next couple hundred years as they become a nation. But, but right at the end of Genesis, we're seeing a group here. 
one of the things that make that that makes people a group, um, psychologists, sociologists might refer to as group theory, uh, not group theory, group identity. Uh, group identity can refer to values um, or behaviors that a group identifies with. So think of a group; it's not just individuals put together, but it's there's there's an ethos that gets developed within that group. This identity, this this. Um, uh, understanding of here's how we respond, here's how we act, here's how we engage with others as a group. And I was just thinking about this, different groups that I am a part of, maybe that you're a part of as well, and the different group identities that, um, that make up these groups. And I, I thought of a, a couple, like um, one being, um, being the group of Texans. Um, what is the group identity of being a Texan? Well, Texans is thought of this. Um, how would you describe just the ethos of being a Texan? Texans are proud of their state heritage, proud of our independent spirit, strive to live out the state motto of friendship, and love Whataburger. Um, but, I mean, we all know you live in Texas, and there's, there's an ethos that comes with it. Or getting a little smaller, living in Houston. What is it, what's, the, what's the group identity of, of a Houstonian? You know, living through all of of hurricanes, my family wasn't here for a Harvey, but um, yeah, I've been a part of hurricanes here in Houston. And there's an ethos that develops a, a group identity. Houstonians help one another, one another out, no matter what. Um, that's that's what we do as a Houstonian. There's this group identity. When I was in college, I was a part of a Christian uh, group called United Campus Ministry. We had a group identity, a smaller. Uh, campus ministry than some of the bigger ones like University or, or uh, Campus Crusade or uh, Baptist Student Union or Ministry, whatever they call themselves nowadays. Um, at United Campus Ministry, we were UCMers. Our group identity was this. The quality of how you treat others indicates the quality of your Christian faith. Um, we believed that the individual relationships within UCM was was of utmost importance. I want you to think about groups that you're a part of. Um, you know, I have some some kind of big groups. Texans, that's a pretty big group. Um, what are some of the groups that you're a part of, and what you would what, what are the the what's the group identity that you would identify with those groups? Um, it could be a professional group, could be your work group. Maybe your company has uh, core values that they post, that they want employees to, to live into. Um, could be a group at, at high school. Um, sometimes group identity isn't uh, terribly godly. <laughs> um, you know, when I was in high school band at Clear Lake High School, made some great friends, and I look back on some of the group identity uh, of that group, and... You know, we did some things that, you know, I wouldn't be asking my kids to, to, to do, but it was a part of just kind of the ethos of being a high school band member. I want you to think about these different groups that you're a part of and what is the group identity with those different groups. So that's one thing for you to think about. And now I want you to think about being a, a, a Christian. And what is, what is the group identity of, of a church, of, of the body of Christ? Um, I think the reason that this story, Joseph and his brothers, is in the Bible is because it presents 
um, something extremely fundamental to the group identity of what it means to be the people of God. And for us today, we would, we would identify that as, as the church, the Christians, Christianity, the people of God. And um, I want to state, a, state one of these core values of Christian community up front um, for you this morning. I think it gets to the heart of this story from Genesis. Christian community is a community of shalom. Now, that word shalom, uh, you've certainly heard it before. You've heard me preach about it plenty of times. Um, but maybe not connecting that term shalom with the, o- the overall Bible story. It's extremely important to the story of the Bible, shalom. Shalom is greater than, than the word peace. We often um, translate that as peace. Um, and sometimes we could think peace of, well, it's just an absence of conflict or an absence of war. Shalom is so much bigger than that. Y'all know this. Shalom um, is an understanding of just wholeness, completeness. It carries with it the idea of provision and and protection and security, where all is well and where no one has to be afraid. That is the biblical concept of shalom. Christian community is a community of shalom. In other words, God has given us the task of bringing that shalom into the world. Um. And shalom was God's intent for the Garden of Eden. And we looked at that, Garden of Eden, where God was going to provide for the human beings that were living in the Garden. Shalom was a quality of the Garden, and shalom was broken when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, ate from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was off-limits for them. It broke shalom. Um, and the rest of the Bible tells of God's relentless pursuit to reestablish shalom wherever it's broken, and that's the task of the church. Now let's look at the story of Joseph and his brothers and see how shalom is so integral to it. Now, I'm talking and I'm wondering if I'm kind of fuzzy through the speakers. Yes, so one of my backup plans is to grab one of these handheld microphones and and use that. I think I'm going to do that Um, because that static is distracting. So hopefully this will be better. Um, so let's look at verse 4 from chapter 37. This is the beginning of the story of Joseph and his brothers. Chapter 37, verse 4, said it's about 10 chapters long, this whole story. It's quite long. Uh, at the beginning, um, we, we hear this about Joseph and his brothers. When Joseph's brothers saw their father, who is Jacob, Loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. That's real significant. Um, What that really says, that kind word, um, what that really says is that they could not speak a word of shalom uh, to him. So the story is about broken shalom. They couldn't speak shalom to their brother Joseph. And then... What does God do to restore this broken shalom? So one day, Joseph's brothers were, were far away um, from home taking care of their flocks. Jacob sends Joseph um, to go check on his brothers. Verse 14 uh, says that Jacob says, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks. 
and bring word back to me. And he actually says, go and see if there is shalom with your brothers. It's actual language there. So let me suggest something. This is a presentation of how human relationships should be. We should love another deeply and be concerned with whether or not each of us has shalom. Are we experiencing shalom? And as Joseph traveled out to his brothers, what should have happened is that when they saw their younger brother coming to them, they were, they were uh, concerned that he was experiencing shalom as well. They should have lit up when they saw him. Here's our little brother. Maybe some good-natured kidding with their little brother. That would have been fine. But here's our little brother. There should be genuine joy in their faces when they see their little brother coming to check on them because that's an attribute of shalom. I recently read a book written by a pastor um, and uh, a friend of his who is a neuroscientist on what gives people joy. Think about the importance of joy to your understanding of peace and fulfillment in life. One of the ways God has wired our brains is um, we feel joy, we experience joy when we see the faces of others light up when we are present. Like, when I come and you're standing out in the hallway and you're like, hey, Greg, and you light up, that gives me joy. Uh, If you remember, if you're old enough to remember the TV show, Cheers, whenever Norm would walk in the bar, everyone shouted out, Norm! It was it lit up. That's how God has wired our brains to feel joy, experience joy. When we see in the face of another, it's just it's kind of lighting up when they see that that we're around. And that what does that do? It helps us to feel like I'm I'm a part of I'm a part of you. I'm a part of your group. Back to group identity, group identity of Christians is that we help establish shalom by being people of joy. So you can fill this in in your your note sheet. We share shalom when we react with joy towards one another. We're going to go through a couple other ways that we promote shalom within the Christian community. So Christians, when you see one another, there should be a joyful greeting. It shouldn't be like the Marlboro man saying, what's up, you know. Um, a joyful greeting. You know, the Apostle Paul thought about this. Uh, he, here's how he says that we should greet one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And in, in Western Christianity, we've kind of dropped that over the last several centuries. Um, the point is, we should be warm. We should be joyful towards one another. How do Joseph's brothers react when they see Joseph, their younger brother, coming to greet them? Verse 18. But when they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, what did they do? Well, they plotted how to kill him. This is a story of broken shalom, isn't it? They see Joseph coming, and they're like, let's kill him. So the story is so much more than just who daddy gave the colorful coat to. It's about broken shalom and what God is doing to restore it. 
And then a remarkable thing happens. They don't kill him because the, the one brother who has the most to lose because of Jacob, his father's favoritism towards Joseph, that's the oldest brother, Reuben. Um, he says, no, no, let's not kill him. Please don't do that. Don't do that. Let's teach him a lesson by throwing him down in the cistern. That's what Reuben says. And Reuben, story doesn't say, but Reuben leaves for a while. For not sure why he did that. But while Reuben was away, Joseph's other brothers, uh, while Joseph is down in that cistern, they see some Midianite merchants traveling by, and they say, well, let's sell Joseph off as a slave. Let's get some money. And they get a full bag of silver for, for Joseph. And then we have to fast forward around 20 years. This is what brings us back to this reunion between Joseph and his brothers. About 20 years pass, and there's famine throughout the land in Egypt where Joseph is and in, in Canaan where Jacob and his brothers and Joseph's brothers are. And through a series of of events where God's hand is blatantly seen, Joseph is now second in charge over all of Egypt. We'll skip that. You can read that. Remind yourself of of that part of the story on your own. But now Joseph is in second command of all of Egypt. He's in charge of handing out food to people because of the severe drought. Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to get food, except they don't have the youngest brother, Benjamin. Because Jacob refused to send the youngest brother down to Egypt because he did not want to lose Benjamin. So Joseph sees his brothers. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And uh, just the way that he responds indicates that um, that he's not he's not ferociously angry with his brothers. Um. But he does want to test them to see if they have changed. And so he accuses his brothers of being spies. And he keeps one of his brothers with him as puts him in, in a jail or in a room or something, holds him back, his brother Simeon. And he tells his other ten brothers, if you want this brother Simeon back, you've got to come back here with your youngest brother. And we get a small indication that over the years, since they sold Joseph, that their hearts actually have changed a bit. Look at uh, chapter 42, verse 21. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Look at, look at what I... I put in, in blue there, but we would not listen. They actually admit their faults. How many, ha, have, you, have you noticed that a, a lot of the time when, you know, when someone does something wrong to hurt someone else, they have a hard time admitting that they were wrong, and they'll say something like, oh, I'm sorry what I said offended you. Or I'm sorry that you took that the wrong way, whatever I did. And it's, it's not a really complete confession of fault, is it? Um, but look at Joseph's brothers here. They're saying, no, we, we were wrong. We did not listen to our brother when he was crying out 
to us. And so something has happened in their hearts, and they're, they're really able to embrace the wrong that they had done. And Joseph is testing to see if that heart change really is true. And then without them knowing it, he puts all of their silver that they brought to buy the food with back in their bags and sends them home to, back to Jacob. And when the brothers realize that, wait, we still have our, our silver, when they get home, they say, this is not good because if we want to see Simeon again, we got to get back to Joseph and, and bring Benjamin with us. And he might say, hey, you took, our, you took my silver. It's not a good thing. Well, they run out of food eventually, and even though Jacob is very reluctant to send Benjamin down with his brothers back to Egypt, finally he consents. The brothers bring Benjamin with them. They head back to Egypt, and they meet Joseph's steward, the, the kind of the manager of Joseph's house household. And they meet the steward, and they respectfully say, Listen, last time we were here, we, we bought food. We brought silver with us. We bought food with silver. When we got home, that silver was still in our sacks. We don't know how it happened. We don't know who put that silver in our sacks. It's real interesting what the steward says. Look at chapter 43, verse 23. This is what the steward says to him. It's all right. And actually, what, what that says is shalom. That's, that's the word that he used. Not it's all right. He said shalom. Be with you. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. When you paid for that grain, I received your silver. Who put that silver in your sacks? God did. He gave you a hidden treasure. That's the best way to understand that word treasure there. A hidden treasure. When God brings shalom, real peace, real security, real provision, it's, it's like a hidden treasure. Sometimes it might not seem all that flashy at first. But then when you live in that kind of security and you realize, whoa, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid because I have shalom. Boy, that, that's a hidden treasure. That's a hidden treasure. And Joseph comes out and he greets his brothers. This is picking up where we read the very beginning, verse 26, when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. A pause right there when Joseph was that teenager, the beginning of this Joseph saga with his brothers. He had a dream of his brothers bowing down to him. And at that time, he flaunted that dream. He bragged about that dream to his brothers, hinting that, he would be superior over them, that they would be subservient to him. And now Joseph is second in charge of all of Egypt, and here they are bowing down before him. And Joseph could take this as an opportunity to start rubbing some of that in him. They're bowing down finally in front of their brother. He could flaunt his power. But remember what this story is about. The story is about restoring shalom where it is broken. It's a story of how human relationships should work. And instead of lording it over his brothers, this is what Joseph does. Verse 27, he asked them how they were. 
And he said, how is your aged father that you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. Literally, this is what it says. He inquired of their shalom. He asked them, do you have shalom? And, and that, that old father of yours that you told me about, does he have shalom? And his brothers answered, yes, he has shalom. Our father has shalom. See, this whole story of Joseph and his brothers occupy ten chapters, a, a fifth of all of Genesis. And it's more than just this bridge story to get the Hebrew people to, to Egypt. It's a picture of, of putting things right. See, so far in Genesis, it's been, it's been right. Scholars have noticed this, that up until this point in Genesis, there hasn't been real reconciliation between broken and, and broken relationships. I mean, people have kind of got on with things, but no real reconciliation. There's not a real moment between Adam and Eve when they, when they own up on how they failed one another in eating that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, you know, Cain never works through his animosity towards his brother Abel and winds up murdering him. Jacob and Esau, we looked at that story last week. Jacob and Esau, you know, they, they, they had this moment where Esau didn't kill his brother Jacob, but there, there never was a moment when Jacob said, oh, Esau, I'm so sorry that I stole your birthright from you. And Esau never went to his brother Jacob and said, I, I am sorry that I held on to anger for so long and wanted to kill you. There's never this, this moment of reconciliation until you get to Joseph and his brothers. When we get a, a hint of, and we're going to get to it at the end, of Joseph expressing joy in his brothers. We never have this reconciliation moment when we we finally see wrongs being made right. And when we see it in this story, it's like a hidden treasure. You can have this, this wealth when you reconcile that you didn't really know about. So another way that we can work for shalom as a community of faith, we share shalom when we reconcile with one another. When we do the things to really restore the relationship, instead of just kind of Ignoring things or forgetting, pretending like things didn't happen, really owning up to our faults and reconciling with one another. There's one more test from Joseph. Um, they all sit down to have dinner, Joseph and his brothers, and Joseph has one more test. He makes sure that Benjamin, the youngest brother, served five times the amount of food that his other brothers are receiving. He is watching his brothers to see their response to Benjamin receiving special treatment, just like Benjamin receives from his father, Jacob, just like Joseph received from his father, Jacob, special treatment. How is his brothers going to respond to that? Joseph is setting something up. And before the brothers, his brothers start making their way back to Jacob in the land of Canaan, Joseph tells a steward to put his own silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And the brothers, they finally leave Egypt. I'm sure they were just sighing, huge sigh of relief. Whew, we're out of here. We got uh, all the brothers are with us now. We got bags full of, of grain to take home. And then Joseph has a steward race after his brothers looking for that silver cup that Joseph had put 
in Benjamin's bag. And the steward says, whoever stole it has got to come back with me to Egypt, to Joseph, and, and be a slave. And when the steward gets to Benjamin, he finds the silver cup in, in his sack. And now if this were the old version of the brothers, uh, what would have happened? They would have been like, whoo high five, we got rid of Benjamin. Send him to Joseph. Let him be a slave. Um, but that's not what happens. Here's what happens. Chapter 44, verse 13. At this, his brothers tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and they returned to the city. They see Joseph when they're back in the city and they say, we will all be your slaves. And Joseph says, no, 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 not at all. Only the one who stole my cup. The rest of you, he tells them, go home to have shalom with your father. Go have peace with your father. He's used the word shalom. And here's the big moment. Here's when they could have said, you know, the brothers could have said, boy, we really tried to write this. But in the end, sometimes things just don't work out. And they could have left Benjamin there with Joseph and gone back to Jacob. But remember, the story is about who God's people are, group identity for God's people. And if they were to, were to have left Benjamin there, that is not shalom. Returning home without Benjamin would not have been shalom. And then Judah does a remarkable thing. In the longest of all recorded speeches in Genesis, Judah, one of Joseph's older brothers, in Genesis 44, he pleads with Joseph. And he tells them of his father's love for Benjamin and how it would crush him if Benjamin would not return to his father. And this is what he says. Now then, please let your servant, let me, Judah's talking, remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. And it's, it's a beautiful moment. It's the first time that we see someone in the Bible offer personal sacrifice in place of someone else to redeem that person back. And it's this unmistakable example of the ultimate sacrifice that someone from Judah's family line would show. Jesus Christ exchanging himself on the cross so that we could go free. You know, one of the fundamental truths about Christianity is personal sacrifice brings life. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. Personal sacrifice brings life. We can sacrifice because Jesus sacrificed for us. His sacrifice moves us to sacrifice. And when we do that as a people of God, there's a revolution that happens. We spur on change to our human experience. We bring shalom to others around us. So a third way that we can share shalom in the body of Christ, we share shalom through personal sacrifice. Get that. Shalom requires personal sacrifice. You know, we can ask one another, how are you doing? Oh, 
I'm doing fine. Doing all right. Good. I'm doing good. All right. Great. How are you? How are you? I'm doing good too. That's that's not shalom. To receive shalom, there is always some sacrifice needed. Maybe the sacrifice needed is just of time listening to someone who is going through a hard time and praying and saying, I love you and I'm going to be here with you through this. Maybe that's the personal sacrifice that's needed. Sacrifice of time. Maybe the sacrifice is actually doing something tangibly to help some, someone who, who, who needs something and can't obtain it on his or her own. Maybe that's the personal sacrifice that's needed. Tangible help. But shalom comes through personal sacrifice, that feeling of, oh, I don't have to be afraid. That, comes, that feeling comes when I see someone being willing to personally sacrifice for me. And this display of love that from Judah just stirs Joseph. And now he sees the true change of heart in Judah and his brothers, and he clears everyone out of the room except for his brothers. And he reveals to them, I'm Joseph, I'm your brother. And he weeps so loudly that everyone in the house that has been removed from the room, they hear Joseph weeping. Even Pharaoh hears about it. Boy, he must have been really weeping loudly. And he tells his brothers, you do not have to be afraid because this is a story of restored shalom between Joseph and his brothers. And we have this book-ending verse for the story, chapter 44, verses 14 and 15. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin, and he wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. At the beginning of the stories, they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't talk to him. At the beginning of the story, they, they did not have a word of shalom for his brother, Joseph. And now finally, after shalom has been restored, they are talking to one another. A big reason why this story is in the Bible is so that we can know that it's part of our story. This is God's people in the Old Testament. We are God's people today. And being people that, that work to bring about shalom, that's, that's us. That's our group identity. That's the message from this story. Part of who we are as God's people is we are here to help bring shalom. So I want you to think of a few things. I want you to think, do I light up when I see fellow Christians coming, when I greet them? Do I light up or am I like, hey, what's up? Um, you know, my, my mom used to have this word she used so often. I don't hear it anymore. It's a good thing. Um, she would call someone a sourpuss if they were just kind of like pouty all the time, you know. Do you light up to bring joy or are you just kind of a, a sourpuss? Maybe that's one of those words that needs to stay three or four decades in the past. We share shalom when, we, when others know that we are glad that they are around. I want you to think, is there someone that I need to reconcile with, especially as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper today? This, this is a, a meal for the whole family of faith. And 
for us to eat and drink rightly, we need to reconcile with one another. There's someone that you need to reconcile with and bring, restore shalom. And then think, is there some level of personal sacrifice that I can make for someone else? Maybe it's a gift of time. Maybe it's a gift of provision. Maybe it's a gift of help. may seem small. may be big. What can you do to sacrifice so that you can bring shalom to someone else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of shalom being restored to your family of faith. And Joseph finally having joy with his brothers. And we want to know that joy Father, we know ultimately that joy comes when we realize that's how you receive us. You receive us with joy. That, that when, when we come to you in prayer, you light up. Your, your face lights up because of your love for us. Lord, help us to know, above all things, the joy that you have for your children. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with your joy. That you would fill our hearts with your shalom. That you would help us to be people that, that build shalom in our church, in our, our families, our neighborhoods, our offices, our schools, our groups, sports teams. Help us to do what we can to bring this shalom. Father, we come to you now and ask that you would revive our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.